Welcome to the Autism Thinks podcast. It's hosted by the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, where we bring together the neuroscience, technology, and innovation to a soundscape that'll change your perspectives on all things autism and the world around us. Just one episode at a time. Okay, so what's the first thing you think about when you hear the word engineering? Maybe buildings and machines, like cars. And airplanes. And spaceships. Three, two, one. ever thought about using the field of engineering to study movement by the human body? It might not seem like a machine at the surface, but this is what biomechanics looks into, using physical principles that apply to other objects of the world. In a sense, biomechanics is the physics of life. Scientist Peter Barron studies musculoskeletal biomechanics with the Kessler Foundation and at Children's Specialized Hospital. My name is Peter Barron. Um, right now I'm employed as a senior research scientist over at Kessler Foundation in West Orange. That's a organization which dedicates a lot of time towards research for bettering the lives of people with several types of uh, disabilities, for instance with brain injury, spinal cord injury, and traumatic brain injury. So really I'm trained as a mechanic mechanical engineer. And mechanical engineering is a broad field and things like heat transfer and thermodynamics, fluid dynamics and, and so forth, maybe those are things that people wouldn't necessarily think of first anyway as being under mechanical engineering. Within mechanical engineering you have mechanics and then within mechanics you have sort of solid mechanics which might be looking at stresses and strains within an object or a material. Really within that you have a field called kinematics and this is really a field of study which concerns the movement of objects. For instance if it was parts in a machine and how they're described and analyzed. We use concepts from kinematics in our work to describe the movement of the human body. So for instance if you think about a walking pattern now you can break this up into a model with a series of joints in this case they would be the hip, the knee and the ankle and they're connecting the segments of the body which would be uh, in this case the thigh and the lower leg and now that we have this we can now start to make measurements within that model or that framework which would be for instance in our case the movement of the knee in the gait feedback project. Learning more about biomechanics can help with gait retraining and rehabilitation. This sort of biomechanical outlook is important as it's far less invasive than alternatives like knee surgery. Back in 2014, when we were kind of brainstorming about what projects we might like to do together, one of the needs that was identified was in um, young people with cerebral palsy. What the clinical need which was discussed is that the physicians use different types of what we call medical interventions or treatments to address 
limitations in movement. So particularly in this case, we're talking about in the leg, for instance, they may not be able to extend their knee fully while they're walking. So that will affect their gait pattern naturally, because usually when we land, we have our leg pretty much all the way straight. There are different treatments that they can use. For instance, one of them, a common one, is called Botox, botulinum toxin, which is essentially injected into the muscle and relieves the spasticity. So the the children now are able to extend their knee better than they were able to before. There are other things such as uh, surgeries. What came across in speaking with the physicians and the therapists is even after they've had these treatments, the children continue to walk quite often in habitual gait pattern, which is really just ingrained from the the first pattern that that they learned. And indeed, if they're asked to sort of alter their gait voluntarily, they can do that. Even though the therapists have a uh, common clinical objective of actually treadmill training and giving different verbal feedback and tactile feedback to increase the symmetry and increase the efficiency of the pattern, they indicated that they really needed some tool to kind of increase consistency of that what we call feedback. So the idea that we have is relatively uh, relatively simple. We have two sensors on our on the leg and we have one sensor on the heel of the shoe. Essentially what the system does is for each step that they take, it builds up a pattern of the knee movement, compares that to the pattern that is derived from a database of of children who are typically developing, and compares that and then puts up a display on the screen. Then the children are basically invited to modify their gait pattern under some kind of verbal cueing, initially at least, to try to um, increase their scoring on this game and so then the idea is that we have a sort of consistent every step feedback to them that they can thereby sort of increase maybe the quality of their practice of this task. This is fascinating since it tells us that verbally guiding someone can have its limitations. There's something about the learning process that is very personal. It's you and the ground you're walking on and your body needs to figure out how best to traverse it. It often takes time and practice. As they say, there are some things that no one can truly teach you. You're sort of your own teacher and student as you maneuver through the world around you. So, I guess the next question you might have is, how could we use this technology to help autistic children? Could this help better support those who have difficulties moving around? What I've learned is that ASD can affect, naturally, attention, but also um, sensory function. What those differences lead to is disruptions in balance, in standing balance, for instance, and there's also some work that shows differences in gait patterns. So I think it's important is to understand, sort of functionally, how important those differences are. And then once that is understood, it's conceivable that the similar types of biofeedback interventions could be used to maybe provide some type of therapeutic intervention to address those. There's a third area of the research that I've seen, which is in this sort of concept of precision phenotyping. And essentially this means very precisely describing small differences, which may be differentially presented between different subtypes of ASD, and therefore that may be you know, helpful in diagnosis and therefore getting the most appropriate treatment for those different subtypes of ASD. Now this idea of looking at precise, subtle walking patterns and gait retraining might sound familiar when considering a topic we discussed earlier in this podcast series, biofeedback. 
What's interesting about this research project is that when a child uses the device, they're able to gain feedback or output responses based on input from sensors. This can help steadily alter or restore human movement. We're using, in this case, a visual pathway to give them the feedback. In addition to practicing with this feedback, we're trying to train them to be able to learn this pattern, but not learn this dependent on the feedback that they're getting. So what we incorporate in our practice is periods of non-feedback practice, so in which we essentially ask them to try to reproduce the pattern that they learn to kind of do well in this game. And so we kind of intersperse them with and without feedback. Dr. Behrens talks about different research projects he's worked on, and one of them concerns knee joint injuries. When I moved to Delaware, the focus changed a little bit to be a little bit more sort of sports medicine oriented. So the project that I worked with Professor Buchanan and others there really was on the subject of knee injuries, particularly for different sports like basketball, uh, for instance. So what we worked closely on was uh, anterior cruciate ligament injury and how that may change the biomechanics of the knee and the firing patterns of the muscles in uh, in the knee. When I was towards the end of that time there, we started to look into technique which was using MRI while um, people are standing up. So we actually have a line of research in that right now. Um, So we use uh, one of the MRI scanners, which is called vertically open. And so we actually have an experiment where people will stand in there and we use uh, a little bit of biofeedback, biofeedback to um, enable them to stand stationary while we take a picture of their knee in the MRI. And at Kessler Foundation, I've had two grants on that. We're kind of coming to the end of the second one now. Let's see, about six years ago now, I was invited to um, join this collaboration with Children's Specialized Hospital where we were, where Kessler Foundation was beginning this relationship and we were looking for sort of new and important projects to pursue in in pediatric rehabilitation. So the projects that I am gonna talk about were really very much organically formed by the collaboration that we created with the physicians and with the physical therapists over at Children's. And I can't say enough about how great it's been working with the team over there. An interesting aspect of Dr. Behrens' research is that he uses wearable inertial sensors which are useful since they can be used to record data outside the lab when study participants are going about their day-to-day tasks. Wearable inertial sensors, which are sort of new, lightweight, small devices which can be placed on the body and can pick up the movement on a computer and record the movement of the human body. And these are sort of new technologies because they're exciting because they enable us to do things sort of outside of the lab without the need for, as you might be familiar with, a more traditional motion capture system using uh, reflective markers that you might have seen for movie production and so forth. He explains more about how the sensors work to capture subtle movement patterns. There are accelerometers in there, and those basically pick up, you know, the acceleration when the device is moved back and forth. The ones that we use are in the realm of about five centimeters by three centimeters, something like that, which I guess would be about two inches by an inch, if you like those units better. They're pretty small and very light. Another one is called a magnetometer, and it picks up the direction uh, relative to the Earth's magnetic field and can kind of give a concept of heading. He also describes a study that involves wheelchairs, looking at patterns in the movement of the elbow to figure out better models of wheelchairs for individuals to use. This was driven in particular by Sheila Blocklinger, 
who is one of the therapists over in Children's Specialized Hospital, and she works in the rehab technology department. So she's responsible for equipping people with the, the right kinds of wheelchairs and other assistive technology. One of the barriers that they find is you know, the insurance reimbursement issue. There's a sort of standard wheelchair, and then there is this uh, super lightweight or ultra lightweight alloy wheelchair which has some other advantages over the standard wheelchair but typically they find it's very hard to get the insurance reimbursement or get access for the, for the people to have these wheelchairs so the idea mainly of this project was to build the evidence base by doing some basic research on what are the advantages of this type of wheelchair so essentially what we did in that project was we acquired three different sizes of each of the two types of wheelchair and then we fitted them accordingly to each participant that came in and was in our research and what we did was we tried the them out while they propelled in three different conditions. One was a uh, sort of level flat ground in a hallway. One was propelling up a ramp and one was propelling over a mat, sort of a thick mat which we took to uh, represent as if you were propelling outside on sort of a more resistive type terrain. While we were doing that, we had them wear the um, wearable sensors, as we kind of talked about, and we also had these uh, instrumented push rims, which record the amount of force that are being put on by the children and adolescents as, as they use the wheelchairs. To kind of summarize the findings on that, it, we, we did publish that study. It's in Disability and Rehabilitation Assistive Technology, and essentially what the findings of that were that the lighter wheelchair was associated with lower forces on the push rim, and we found that it was more efficient and had lower energy costs. They propelled faster with it, and there were some changes in movements, which we documented and wrote up. So that article is out there, and I hope that it's um, actually gone some way towards the original goal that we had for it in terms of providing this thing that they can look towards if there's a question back from the insurance company on the value of these wheelchairs. In case you're wondering what the data analysis process looks like, Dr. Behrens describes the translation of different forces when looking at the kinetics of wheelchair propulsion and movement. You know, one of the findings that we found in the wheelchair uh, study that I mentioned was that we actually had more movement in the lighter weight wheelchair, and we figured that might be because it was less restrictive to the overall movement. So I hope that kind of gives you an idea of how some of these concepts from engineering can kind of come over and be applied in biomechanics. There's another field called um, kinetics, which is really the study of how forces act on and between objects and how those are related to the movement of the objects. And so in um, what we call classical mechanics, this all comes down to Newton's laws of motion. For in human movement, Again, we have multiple segments moving around, and we use computer analysis methods to analyze because it becomes a rather complicated problem at this point, right? Because we have so many um, joints and segments that are now interacting with each other. With a computer model like that, a kinetic model like that, we could now start to say for our wheelchair project, how does the uh, force that's put onto the push rim to make the wheelchair move, how does that relate to the forces that are internal and the, and the movements of the body, and maybe then how do we make a more efficient wheelchair stroke, and how do we make sure that we're not leading to long-term overuse injuries, that type of thing, which can be an issue in wheelchair propulsion as well. And to end this podcast on a moving note, Dr. Behrens talks about the future of his work how there's a lot to be learned, and how he learns something every day from the young participants in his studies. 
big part of the enjoyment of the job is getting to meet the young people to hear about and learn from their experience and see how they relate to it and the same same way for the parents there's a lot to be learned and a lot of enjoyment as well in the interactions and and also hopefully the idea that maybe what we're doing someday anyway can be something that can be turned into something that will be more beneficial for these young people and with that Thank you so much for listening to the Autism Thinks podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Peter Barents' research and support it, here's how. Listeners can go to Kessler Foundation's homepage, which is at kesslerfoundation.org, and then click on Join a Study in the top right of the screen. At Children's Specialized Hospital, a dedicated page describing all the research going on down there, and that is at www.childrenspecialized.org research. Again, that's www.childrens-specialized.org slash research.